Hi, everybody, and welcome to Walk on the Wild Side. I'm Crispin Baines. I'm one of the founding members of the Wild, and I'm your host. In this episode, we sit with Professor Andrew Scott at the London Business School. Uh, Andrew is Professor of Economics at LBS and is a fellow at All Souls, Oxford University, and the Centre for Economic Policy Research. He's previously held posts at Harvard, London School of Economics, and also Oxford. And Andrew has co-authored The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity, along with Linda Grattan. It's a really important book, uh, and in the book they outline the challenges and, and intelligent choices that all of us of any age need to make in order to turn greater life expectancy into a gift and not a curse. This isn't an issue for when we're old, but it's urgent and an imminent one for now. The book's been extremely well received by critics and readers alike. Uh, it's had extensive coverage around the world, and we'll get into all of that on the show. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between myself and Andrew Scott. We're here at the London Business School. Thanks for making us feel welcome. Uh, Andrew and uh, uh, his colleague Linda have written a phenomenal book called The, the Hundred Year Life, uh, which we're going to get into a little bit on the show. Uh, but firstly, before we, we go down that road, Andrew, um, why don't you just um, quickly just tell us your, your background and what, what, what brought you to this point? Wow, good question. Uh, so I'm a, a Londoner. I've always been fascinated in ideas, but I've always liked impact. Uh, I think, uh, you know, ideas are a great thing, but ideas can change the world. So I've always been interested in academic disciplines with that spillover. Uh, and as economist, I've had plenty of opportunities to sort of do that. So most of my career has been spent in macroeconomics, looking at interest rates and looking at fiscal policy, uh, recessions, booms, uh, those sorts of things. But after a while, I became more interested in some of the bigger trends, some of the big things that I think are more multidisciplinary and change the world around us. And that's kind of how I ended up in looking at longevity and ageing. Interesting. And so what, what brought you and Linda, what motivated you to, 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 write, to write the book yeah. and how did you get together on the project? So, um, so I said most of my first sort of 20-odd years of my career were spent looking at interest rates, uh, GDP, and then the financial crisis came, which mm -hmm. was kind of extraordinary to see and intellectually fascinating to observe. And after the crisis, I was on the board of the UK's financial regulator, but I was a little bit frustrated intellectually and policy-wise with the response. And I think I was looking for new territory. And here at the business school, I teach a course called World Economy, mm. Problems and Prospects. And as part of that course, I look at things like globalization, technology, these big trends that change the world around us. Things you don't notice in any one year, but bit by bit transform everything. And I'd always give a talk about the ageing society. And... Every year I gave it, I became increasingly frustrated because, one, it's pretty miserable. Um, you know, it just says we can't afford to get old. There's too many old people. Old people are a problem. They're not productive. They have health problems. And some of that is, of course, true. But it, it kind of puzzled me because every year I gave it, I thought, I don't understand this because I'd start off with the data. And the data would show that, on average, people are living for longer and they're healthier for longer. Mm -hmm. Then you end up with this sort of conclusion, oh, gosh, this is a problem. And I couldn't reconcile that individual good news with the aggregate bad news story. And then, you know, I kind of realised, well, there's two things happening. There's more old people as we have a fall in the birth rate and people live for longer. But how we're ageing is changing. Right. And, uh, 
And if we ignore that, which the ageing society narrative does, you miss out on one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century, which is a substantial increase in life expectancy, 36 years in the UK, most of which is healthy. And you can see around us people are behaving differently at different ages. And how do you seize that advantage so that more people live for longer? And how do you seize the advantage as the economy so you can capitalise on that and turn it into an advantage? Mm. So Linda and I were doing a faculty tour uh, for the school going around the Far East. And we spent lots of time on aeroplanes. And I said, you know, I just don't think people have got this ageing stuff right. She said, I just don't think companies understand what's happening. And we said, right, let's write a book. So we wrote a book. Right, OK. And, uh, and it's a phenomenal book and, uh, and I think certainly one of the leading voices now and, and a game changer and help, helps us to really process uh, not only the challenges but, 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 but the opportunities. And um, we'll get into the book in, in, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little bit more detail. How did you tackle the writing together? Did you divide, divide and conquer? Or? No, it's an interesting because we're just literally finishing uh, the next book. Um, and I, I don't quite know how to describe the process. We have very different backgrounds, very different interests, very different ways of working and writing. But somewhere between us, the book emerges. And there are certain bits where you can say, well, that was Linda's bit, that's my bit. But actually... You know, by the time it's finishing, it's really a joint. Everything's kind of a joint product. Yeah. So uh, uh, I'll tend to write. Um, I tend not to write until I've done lots of reading, uh, and I write something very structured. And, and Linda will um, be more uh, pick up an idea and follow it, and then we sort of mash it together. Really. So yeah. Yeah, it's very much a joint enterprise. Right. And as you were researching the book, um, and you, you continue to research, are there, are, what, what are some of the things that have come up, come as surprises? What are some of the standout, um, big, big sort of um, uh, takeaways? Well, there's some. There, there's a lot, there's obviously quite a lot. Um, I mean, the one was just the life expectancy stats, which most people aren't aware of. Just the increase in life expectancy has happened. Mm. If you ask most people how long they're going to live, most people have got no idea because they've never thought of it, which is perhaps understandable. And then those who do come up with an answer, which is about a third of people in the classroom, they look to their grandparents. But if you look at the trends in life expectancy, that's going to be an underestimate. So mm. the, the linearity of life expectancy increases. The, the constant trend is extraordinary, and most people's lack of awareness of it. I mean, for me, the biggest insights are they're always the simplest ones, and it takes a while to get it, which is that this increase in life expectancy we see as an ageing phenomenon. But, of course, it's about all of life, not just end of life. Mm. The years mm. that have been added on average to life aren't at the end. If anything, they're kind of coming at the end of middle age. Right. Uh, and that has implications for how we live all our life. So, you know, the metaphor I always give is the day went from... So, over the last 150 years, mm -hmm. something called best practice life expectancy has increased by two or three years every decade. Okay. Which the best practice life expectancy is the country at any point in time with the highest average life expectancy. So it's Japan currently. Japanese women have a life expectancy of about 87. Mm -hmm. But that number increases by two or three years every decade, or has done, which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, two or three years every decade, that's a bit like the end of a day having another eight hours. Yeah. And that's, you know, if the day went from 24 to 32 hours, mm -hmm. we'd structure it differently. And I think mm -hmm. this, is, to me, is the... The biggest surprise, but in some ways the most obvious thing, is that time is a social convention. Right. We structure time to make it work for us. So we invented the weekend in the 20th century, but we also invented 
teenagers and retirees in the 20th century. Uh They didn't exist before. As life got longer, we said, well, you know, childhood's got to go on a bit longer. So we had teenagers emerged. And then we said, well, we can give people this sort of pleasant period of financial independence at the end of life. And so retirement was born. And these were just new ways of life. Mm -hmm. And we're doing similar things today. You can see people now getting... Average age of marriage, average age of having a first child is in the 30s. You're now in the UK more likely as a woman to have a child in your 40s and under 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing the number of people working over 60 and over 70 double the last decade. And we're seeing divorce rates falling but rising for the older age group. So we are seeing a whole new map of life begin to emerge mm-hmm. because we are restructuring time. And ultimately, longevity is about time and not about the end of life. And then, of course, once you realise that and start thinking, well, how do you structure the map of life so you can age well, you suddenly pull the whole thing together. That's It's a great concept, and, and I think it's right at the heart of the book, really sort of taking a step back and saying, OK, we've got more time. Um, hopefully, for for many of us, it's, it's healthy time. Yeah. Um, and so if you've got a, a greater health span, then how are you really preparing for that? How are you going to harness those those, those years? And um, I think that's a really important um, change that's happening now. And um, h- how do you see um, companies and corporations, for example, um, well, re- rethinking policy around this? They're beginning to do it. I mean, going back to your comment about kind of what's the most surprising thing, I guess ultimately mm. what that led me to was a belief that to a degree that I never thought possible, ageing is malleable. So we know that you can affect how you age through education. Mm -hmm. Your chances of getting Alzheimer's are much less than education. We know that if you exercise and you don't eat or drink or smoke too much, you're going to be healthy. We know that if you have purpose and engagement, you tend to age better. And, of course, the scientists claim that we may soon find age is malleable to a degree we didn't think possible. Mm -hmm. So once you think about that age malleability and how malleable the structure of life is, then kind of everything's up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And that's how individually we live our life in terms of when we get education, how long our careers are for, uh, then it's what the government does and how it thinks about pensions and healthcare. And then there's corporates, and I find in general corporates are the furthest behind here. Really? What you've got is a bunch of individuals who are experimenting and pioneering. Social change is always led by individuals. Mm -hmm. Governments are kind of weirdly schizophrenic. They're sort of doing stuff that's going to make a difference in 50 years' time, and then they're obsessed with the Monday morning headlines. Sure. And then, by and large, companies ain't doing much. It's been interesting the last two or three years. I begin to see, as this topic comes to prominence, some companies beginning to do things. Um, They're beginning to realise there's a large cohort coming up to retirement and they've got to do something about that. Maybe they don't even want that cohort to leave. As there's concerns about immigration beginning to be restricted, Mm. they're saying, well, I need to worry about my workforce. But in general, you know, one of the biggest bastions of ageism in society is in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. And um, I think that has to change. And I think, to your point, individuals will will change that. So throughout the course of the research of the book and, and, and your, your, your journey now, are there any standout individuals that you've seen or um, people who are kind of thinking this through differently and, and approaching it differently and, and, and by virtue of that just sort of you know, changing, changing the current status quo? Yeah, I think... I, I mean, I think so... If I can just be self-indulgent to write the book that came out three years ago and is still sort of maintaining momentum. Mm. Um, 
it was interesting why the book has done so well. And, you know, I'd like to think it's because it's a great book and it's well written. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But clearly timing was huge. Yeah, it's and, very prescient. Uh, and it sort of just caught the beginnings of a bunch of... And it's interesting. Different countries pick up on the book in different ways. But it sort of just caught the... I think... A, you know, I've been, since an undergraduate, reading stuff about the ageing society. And it's not working out quite as people thought. Mm. So, you know, the ageing society was as this tsunami of uh, pension claims. And then it was, oh, the consumer market, because, you know, Japan sells more adult diapers than baby diapers. But, of course, where it's showing up is the labour market. Yep. Um, over the last 20 years, uh, the US has created 22 million jobs, and 19 million of them are people aged over 50. That's remarkable. So it's quite extraordinary what is happening. So, you know, you're you're seeing this change happen. And I think people then go, oh, yeah, actually, I am. It's different from what I thought. You know, I'm behaving differently from my parents. I, I've got different choices and different options. And I think that's then where we are at the moment, where there's a lot of people um, pioneering and experimenting. So I, I think Mark Freeman Estates is great what he's doing, Encore. But sure. you have lots of other examples uh, of people who are doing it. Uh, and then you've got sort of various people, I mean, Laura Carstensen, Chip Conley, mm -hmm. uh, who are out there sort of trying to provide a narrative for this. Yeah. Then in terms of companies, I think what you've got, you've got a beginnings of change occurring. Mm. Um, I've noticed, of course, the financial firms are beginning to get onto this and say, oh, wow, you know, if we've got to hit these people with 50 plus with lots of money, we need to do a different message. Right. Employers in the UK, you've got Aviva, you've got Mercer, particularly Legal and General and, and Barclays, who are all beginning to introduce schemes for um, more flexible working and older workers. Mm. Um, I, but I think we're still looking for a CEO champion, someone who says, you know, this is now the era I'm going to push. And the agenda is sort of pretty profound, but it's beginning to happen. We need to move away from an obsession that you recruit at the beginning of a career and then people mm -hmm. just progress through to retirement. Mm -hmm. We've got to have firms to have multiple recruitment points throughout the working career. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to start thinking about lifelong learning, both for the individual and for the corporate. Mm -hmm. uh, and we clearly need to revamp the concept of retirement, which is already happening. I mean, mm -hmm. the notion that there's a fixed age where everyone comes to a hard stop of work is already long since gone. Um, but I think there's still not quite the social apparatus to support the myriad different ways people want to behave, and corporates are behind on that agenda. Yeah, I think that's that's um, incredibly accurate. Yeah, and, and on the notion of retirement, I think it is changing because the people that went to Woodstock don't necessarily want to go to Florida and play golf. Yes. Um, yeah. In fact, on the contrary, I think people... Um, you mentioned Mark Friedman, for example. This, the, it, are people actually retiring or are they yeah. just retooling or repurposing and yeah. you know, um, getting ready for the next stage? And I think we need to um, support and embrace that. We do. I mean, you know, the, the, the proportion of people who unretire is quite staggering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we know engagement matters. Engagement matters for a good life. And work is one way to get engagement. But mm -hmm. Mark Friedman has other ways. But I think what this points to, which is where the 100-year life is remorselessly positive, and I think, you know, that was a choice because there's lots of other people who are remorselessly negative mm -hmm. and we need to balance different things. But, you know, this is a great opportunity. We can rewire the map of life to do new things. Yeah. And if we've got more people who are healthy and fit in old age, and that's not to deny there are a lot of people who aren't, then how do we tap into this resource? And the scope to redress the intergenerational segregation that occurred in the 20th century. I mean, you know, the book says the 20th century created a three-stage life of education, mm -hmm. work and retirement, where your age pins down your stage. 
And that has been terrible for segregating society on an age basis. Mm-hmm. And I'm still convinced this is where things like millennial labels come because if you don't interact with people, you start to wonder what they're like. Yeah. And then you start falling prey to these somewhat ridiculous generational stereotypes, which are, as far as I can see, are a form of demographic astrology. The notion that a certain <laughs> set of dates spins down your behaviour and your character and what you're going to do is just massively overblown. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's part of the intergenerational segregation. So we have whole new options around for people of all ages to explore yeah. if we have this greater time. I think it's um, um, just on this uh, intergenerational, you know, we tr- it's about, I think, finding new ways of doing old time-honoured things and yes. reconnecting the ages. Yeah. And um, we've done quite a lot of, of, of reading, quite passionate about how do we get intergenerational potluck or yeah. um, genuine, authentic exchange going on. Um, do you think that that's something, or that's a key piece to changing this narrative on on, on ageism and changing the the ism that's still left? Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the sort of you know going back to some things that I found surprising or interesting, um, the the emergence of chronological age as the dominant narrative in life is quite modern. So, for most of human history, people didn't know when they were born. Mm-hmm. So they'd never celebrated birthdays. The song Happy Birthday is a 20th century creation. So if you don't know the day you were born, you probably also don't know how old you are. So yeah. when asked whether someone's old or young, it's going to be based around their functional ability. I mean, mm. there's some knowledge of sort of whether people are old or not, but it's not based on chronological age. But once government started to keep accurate birth records, then society started to focus on chronological age as a way of segregating society, characterising people and their incentives. And I think that's one of our big challenges, even things like the old age dependency ratio, which is a horrendous concept, pinning down the notion of old at 65. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that was ever true, but it's certainly a sweeping generalisation. And that leads to this notion that, you know, everyone over 65 is a homogenous group. But, of course, what we know, because ageing is malleable, that as the life course extends, people age very differently. Mm -hmm. And so diversity is one of the key characteristics Mm -hmm. of uh, older people. Um, But that's not allowed for in the chronological sense of age. And, again, this notion of an ageing society I find very troubling because if you measure age chronologically, then, of course, you're going to find there's more old people as the birth rate declines. Mm -hmm. But if we are ageing better, and there is evidence to suggest that on average we are, then you're going to miss that entirely by focusing on chronological age because everyone ages at the same rate chronologically, one year every year. And if you look at the UK stats or the US stats and many other countries as well, the average citizen has never been so old Mm. but has never had so long left to live. Right. And I'm not sure you can unambiguously call that an ageing society. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got more candles on my cake, yeah. but I'm going to see more birthday cakes than the average citizen ever before. So in some mm-hmm. sense, I've got more past, but I've also got more future. Yeah. And to call that unambiguously an ageing society seems to miss the point. It just, just misses it altogether. Yeah. So, so let's just talk about what success could look like. Um, you know, we've, we understand the, the current status quo. We understand that there's, there's some positive forces changing it. But if we fast forward to, to a, you know, a period, hopefully not too far from now, where ageism is less, of, is, is, is less pre- pre- prevalent, um, how, how could society look if we, if we, if we, if we get, it, get it right? Yeah, so, um, you know, and I think, by the way, one of the biggest forces that's going to undermine ageism is just that sheer diversity of how people age. Because as more and more people live to older years and on average living better, but forget about the average... As more people reach, you know, 65, 75, 85 plus, 
the diversity of what they're like becomes ever more apparent, and that itself will start to undermine ageism, mm -hmm. because people will just go, "Wow, this person's you know, ninety and they're running the hundred meters or something." I mean, to give an extreme example. Mm -hmm. So I think the ageism is going to be a common attract from lots of different ways. What does success look like? I think it's a world where we move away from a three-stage life, where age is stage, where people have more flexibility and um, they're more forward-looking so they can age better mm -hmm. and people look less at someone's age and more at someone's personality and characteristics mm -hmm. because it's obviously there is still an arc of life. There is still a sense of a journey that as people get older, your perspective on life changes. Um, you know... 78-year-olds today in the UK, a 78-year-old man in England and Wales today has the mortality rate of a 65-year-old in 1922. Mm -hmm. yep. But I'm very loath to say 78 is the new 65 because 78 is just the new 78. Yeah. And I think just that sort of recognition that we are behaving differently at all ages and some people at 78 will need care and attention, others won't. Yeah. And to decouple that link between age and stereotype and just look at people as individuals yeah. is clearly where it goes. And that works right the way through the labour force because I think what you're going to see with the end of a three-stage life is a multi-stage life. If people are going to have to work to the late 70s, which if life expectancy is 100, you probably mm -hmm. will, you can't possibly maintain the career that we have today from 20 to 80. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a multi-stage life where sometimes you're working hard, sometimes it's all about money, other times it's a better work-life balance, something innovative and entrepreneurial or mm -hmm. putting mm -hmm. something into society. And that can be arranged in a multiplicity of different ways. Mm -hmm. So the age groups will mix, and I think you'll see people more by what they're doing rather than how old they are. That has to be where we get to. Yeah, I think that's a critical pathway. And and on, and on that point, in the book, you um, you you've, you you make it v very clear to sort of grasp the possibilities by talking about the notion of we've got productive assets and vitality yeah. assets, but also trans transformative assets. Yeah. Um, can you just talk a little bit about those and and why yeah. it's important? No, it is, and I, I think um, that to me was one of the sort of big discoveries we came through. So, what was interesting when we first started presenting the book here at the school, I can remember giving it to some of our executive education people, was that I'd go through the life expectancy stats and say, you know, good news on average, you're going to live for longer than you thought when you walked in. But there's always a bunch of people, I mean, invariably men in their late 50s, who are at the back of the room would go, oh, shit. And you thought, that's a weird response to being discovering you're going to live for longer than you previously thought. But that's because they realise that they're going to have to work for longer to finance it. Right. And... You know, if all this extra time is work, then that's a, a real challenge. Um, but that's what worries me a little bit with a lot of the government response to this issue, because governments are effectively playing around with the parameters of a three-stage life. They're saying, well, if you work for longer, put more into your pension and get a smaller pension, we can keep the three-stage life alive. But as those 50-year-olds in the back of the room suggested, that's not very appealing. So how can we restructure our life in a different way? But most people go straight to think about the finances. How do I make my finances work over a longer life? Now, you know, I don't mm. want to be too Pollyannish here because finances are important and you've got to make your finances work and it is a real issue in a 100-year life. Mm. But you kind of, you've got to structure your finances to support your life rather than structure your life to support your finances. And just saying I'm going to work till I'm 70, work till I'm 75 is terrible because... Mm you have a portfolio of assets you have to maintain. Mm -hmm. And one of them is financial. You've got to invest in your financial assets. But you've also got to invest in your skills and knowledge, your productive assets. 
And if you start work at 20 and intend to work to 80, your productive assets will have hit zero long since. You need to top up through education. Right. Then there's your vitality assets, which are your... um, your health and well-being, so it's your physical and mental health, but also your relationships. Mm. And if you work as hard as we currently do between 20 and 80, then you probably won't have good health and you probably won't have good relationships. And you can't build lifelong friendships when you're 80. You have to start much earlier than that. So we sort of saw this multi-stage life emerge where you're going to sort of ramp up, ramp down at work, Mm. perhaps try different things. And this, of course, is one of the great opportunities of a longer life. You can do different things. And some of those transitions will be chosen by you. You'll Mm -hmm. say, I've had enough of this, I want to do something different. Others will be forced upon you. You lose your job because of automation. So transformational assets then become very important because they're the means through which you navigate through these changes of identity. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain sort of uh, almost Buddhist-like feeling to this because, of course, as life gets longer and you go through more changes question is what makes it your life what is the thread that hangs it together Mm. and in a three-stage life our job and working career provide a key part to our identity Mm -hmm. but in these longer lives i don't think that's going to be feasible so Mm -hmm. how do you as a person deal with change because not some people are good at it some aren't um and then how do you knit it all together so that your life becomes coherent rather than a series of uh, uh, random uh, sequences yeah i think you're Absolutely right, when, and that's that's very helpful. Um, and I think you also re- raise an important point, and it, it comes across very well in the book that you know we must you know take care of our financial planning, yeah. Um, because if you've got extended years, there's work that needs to be done, and, and just not doing anything is not an option. Um, so, just on that point, what are some of the financial? If, if, if someone was sort of in their, you know, fifties or sixties now and is thinking about, okay, I've got all this extra time, you know, really thinking that I might want to go and do some study, or might want to go and do a gap year, or might want to um, go and do some contribution to society. That's all great. How? how what are some of the the, the the more sensible approaches to financial planning that you've you've come yeah. across? And of course, financial planning varies enormously depending upon your circumstances, depending mm-hmm. upon your income, your education, and the assets you've got. And of course, for many people, financial planning is a nonsense because you're just living from Monday to Monday. So there's no question of planning; it's just making it work. I think, you know, I, in some ways, I think, you know, I, I talk about the assets in general. The key thing about longevity is you've got more future so you need to be more forward-looking in every regard Mm -hmm. and you have to embrace that forward-looking because otherwise you'll be ill-prepared for the future and finances is part of that and lots of people are frightened of finances feel uncomfortable about it but particularly if you're sort of reaching your sort of 50s you really need to do an audit and say okay where are my finances I've always thought I'd save how I saved anything is this the time I need to do it now Mm -hmm. um what sort of lifestyle am I heading for but again, I think it's a mistake just thinking about the finances in general. I think what you've got to realise is it could be in your 50s that a great way of making money for the future is to spend the money you've got on retraining because it could well be that your current job won't last or you don't want to last in your current job. Mm-hmm. And if you can support your health, your enthusiasm and your skills to go for another 10 years, that's a fantastic return mm-hmm. that might be greater than just sticking it in a nicer. So I think that's what's hard because... Some of the financial advice and the social norms that we follow from our parents are no longer relevant right. when life expectancy is increasing so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, obviously the 50s is a key time to do an audit, make awareness, 
And the best financial advice, I think, is always sort of the behavioral stuff. And Richard Thaler from uh, Chicago is good on this stuff, which mm. is that try and make it automatic and not a choice variable. Um, so that, you know, you've got certain pots of money that you put into and you just don't touch them. You just don't think about them. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you might have a pension fund, you might have an education fund, you might have a sabbatical right. fund or wherever it might right. be. And then you just automatically allocate money into that. Right. It's not a choice variable because choices are hard. Yeah. And particularly about the future, choices are very difficult because we always can solve a conundrum by giving today more resources at the cost of the future. Yeah. And is relying on home equity a good good plan? Oh, lordy. Uh, I'm not qualified to offer financial advice. Nothing I say should be counted as financial advice. I was a regulator as before. I mean, what's interesting, of course, we have a whole generation coming through Mm. who are going to be owning the house, if at all, much later. So they won't be able to rely upon home equity. Mm. And then, of course, the other challenge is wall house prices carry on rising. Mm. And we've had 50 or 60 years of spectacular increases mm-hmm. in house prices. But if there is house building in the UK, if public transport is improved, then you can't rely upon that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting all your money into one particular channel is risky. And if it's your house, it's all the more risky. Because mm-hmm. then, of course, are you going to sell your house if you need to get access to the money? Yeah. So uh, yeah. it's been a wonderful thing for the baby boomers housing equity. It doesn't look to be such a great advantage to the generation coming after. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's very accurate. And so... Um, to note that you know financial planning, um, case by case, is subjective, and, and but it, 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 you know doing no, doing nothing is not a plan. Um, getting back into the more intangible assets, yep. which are you know um, increasingly more important. I think you raise a good point that there's a danger of you know being you know head down working, um, you know to um, just pay the bills and or because we have this you know strong um, identity related to, to career. And that can can sometimes, you know, um, um, risk um, relationships, which you know your 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 perhaps your two true possessions in life are, yeah, are those absolutely. relationships with family and friends. Yeah. And so, um, how would you say are some of the sort of sensible ways to think that through with with more years? Yeah. So I think you know, again, you know, there's lots of challenge here because you've got more future and. You know, what I said earlier that life's got longer. It's like the day going from 24 to 32 hours. Mm. If you were to say to sort of someone who's 15 or 16 who knew, you know, didn't see anything happening in society and said, how do you want to plan your life? It's an incredibly complicated exercise. And so, of course, we look around us and say, oh, well, yeah, my parents did this, my friends have done that, people in the community. So you, we copy social norms. And the challenge we've got is that the social norms of a three-stage life will not support well the type of life expectancy you can expect in the UK. In the UK, government says a, a, a girl born today has a one in three chance of reaching 100, mm. uh, which is staggering. So we have to sort of make it up on the fly, and mm. I think that's both exhilarating because, hey, we can make it up as we go along, mm-hmm. we can do what we like, mm-hmm. but also it's sort of worrying. So, And it is particularly this area of intangible assets, relationships and health where we have to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, this, this greater future that kind of at all ages everyone's got more time ahead of them in the past means you've got to think more about your future self. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the transformational assets come in because you've got to try and have empathy that your future self may be a different person from they are now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we look at the past, my my father, I mean, he had to go through a world war, etc. but he didn't go through many transitions. And a group I particularly worry about in the UK is people sort of in their late 40s, early 50s who think, I'm going to be all right, I'll make it through to retirement, my job's okay, mm-hmm. and then my finances will be fine. 
But around 50, you start to see people lose their jobs, often unexpectedly. They may feel they're performing well, but suddenly there's a change at work, firm thinks they haven't got the skills, and they're laid off. And suddenly you've got a problem because well, your identity is gone, your role is gone, mm. your finances are going to be under real stress now mm. because you're 50, not 65, and you haven't got a job. And you've got to suddenly learn new skills, a new network, and reinvent yourself. Mm. And, you know, some people cope with that fine. There's all sorts of ways of doing it and growing support to do it. But it is a real, real challenge. So I think the trick is to sort of, before you get to that state, say, well, this is who I am now. Mm. But who can I be in the future? And how do I get a path to be who I want to be? And, of course, we do this when we're teenagers. I think we're doing it more and more people in their 20s. We've mm-hmm. just got to keep doing it through the lifespan. Yeah. And that comes back again to the notion that these extra years of life haven't really come at the end for most people, but it's sort of the end of middle age. Yeah. And I think that's where that group kind of need to think, well, it's almost like a middle-aged teenage year. It's like being juvenescent or something. Mm. I may have to reinvent. You may be fine. And that's okay. You may carry on doing what you've always done, but you've got to think a little bit about your future self in 10 or 15 years' time and how to get there. Yeah, for this sort of middle, middle essence, I guess yes. we could call it. Yes. Yeah, and, and there's a, there's, there's, there seems to be a groundswell of, um, of people and organisation around that. You know, we, we have a mutual friendship, Connolly, yeah. who started the Modern Elder Academy. Yeah. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's having success because, you know, people, he's, he's making it okay to... To, to not know what you want to do, yeah. but he's but he's making it also um, um, a pathway where people can you know, come to a place, press pause, you know, and 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 re-engineer and repurpose for yes. this for these for these later yeah. years. And I think the I more mean, we see of that, totally. And Mark Freeman says we don't have a midlife crisis; we have a midlife chasm. We don't have the social institutions to support these transitions at yeah. this stage. And there's something in that. And I think. You know, what's so interesting going again to education is education fulfills so many different roles. And clearly with technology and longer careers, we need to think about how we update skills continuously. Mm. But for many people, when you go to college, it's a time when you kind of meet different people. You go with your own values, but you get an injection of other people's views. And you decide, OK, this is my values going forward. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel we need a bit of a re-injection of that in middle age. I mean... I think what's so interesting about the topic, particularly you know, when you take the longevity approach, the 100-year life approach, is it's got sort of something for everyone, whether you're 90, 50 or 20, you have to think about the future differently. Mm-hmm. But it does seem that that 50-year group, particularly in the US and UK, most buy into the longevity event yeah. from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. There's a, there's a huge amount of opportunity there. And you know, I think that... This social narrative and this background music on aging and ageism starting you can feel it starting to change and, and the baby yes. boomers as they come through yes. you know we have them to thank for so much social yes. change yes. are starting to drive that you just want yeah. it to be a non-marker my, my worry is that this agenda gets captured by the sort of healthy 50 or 60 year olds um because you know the other thing i think that the three-stage life and the phrase aging brings to mind is it's about end of life mm. But, of course, if you're really worried about ageing, you want to worry about the future old, who are the current young. And I think it's Fran Leibovitz who says when she was young, she just kind of thought of the old as a different ethnic group, not mm-hmm. recognising the link between today and the future. And I think, you know, that's that's a, a really important part because I see age as malleable, but also, I say, recursive, in the sense that what you do now influences what happens next, and what you do next will influence what happens after that. Mm-hmm. And that draws this great connection through life, not just 
intergenerationally in society, how do we get those greater constructs? Mm. But how do we think about this path as we age? Um, and, you know, clearly we have to make sure people have a new map of life, which means doing things differently in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely the way forward. And um, one of the... Um, the areas that we, we as an organisation are interested in, one of the subject areas, I know this isn't your field, I'm just keen to get an opinion and yeah. a viewpoint, is senior housing and care yep. um, industry itself. Yeah. And, um, obviously, it's um, there's a lot of dependency-based um, services and settings, yeah. and are they perhaps you know suitable for the the next um, generation of old people? And I guess the question is, you know, how, how do you think that, that industry has to change to remain relevant for for the for the new old yeah so i mean again it goes back to diversity doesn't it and of course you know there's so many there's more old people and how our aging is changing and the balance between those two is really important Mm. and even though the incidence of dementia is declining we're seeing more and more people with dementia simply because of the size of the population and, you know, there's clearly an urgent social care challenge, particularly in the UK, where existing system is under-resourced and poorly structured. So there has to be something around social care for those who are incapable of looking after themselves or supporting themselves. Um, my worry is that that seems to be, certainly in the UK, kind of, oh, that's the problem. Mm. Whereas, of course... People are very different, aged over 65, aged over 80 and aged over 90. So we need to think of a raft of different real estate, just as you would for people under 65. Mm. I mean, I, I just more and more I just think, you know, why are people surprised that the over 65s are as diverse as the under 65s? Yeah. Why, why would you not expect it differently? So clearly real estate's going to change a lot. You said earlier that people don't want to live in retirement complexes, I th- um, you know, sort of um, uh, Florida Sunshine Coast type of thing. I think that's right. And, of course, what you're seeing is more older people wanting to live in cities as well. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create a challenge because as older people stay in the city and if they own the houses, cities become increasingly expensive. Yeah. So we've got to think about ways of releasing some of that housing stock, building mm-hmm. new forms of housing that's accessible, that enables greater intergenerational living. Mm-hmm. And that achieves mm-hmm. intergenerational mix that you were referring to. I think it also creates a sense of engagement and coherence that yeah. otherwise may be lost. So that's about planning rather than just housing per mm-hmm. se. And then, of course, you know, I think if you look at the... His, I always think it's interesting in the UK where the housing stock's quite old. Mm. Houses are just houses. They're a structure. Then you go to the States and they're often in New York there's a concierge who's providing some brief services. Then you go to the Middle East and the kind of, there's not a kitchen in half the places because everything's service <laughs> provided. Yeah. And so clearly over time as societies get richer, real estate becomes a provision of services. Yeah. And you're seeing that across the lifespan, yeah. not just at the end of life. But it has particular implications, I think, for senior care. Although I don't care for the phrase senior. Yeah, it's not an ideal phrase. It's um, I think you have to represent aging honestly, and you have to. Um, we have to be cognizant of the fact that you know some things will change, and yes. especially as we as we get perhaps in the last ten years yeah. of life. I mean, so what we're going to do is create a, um, a real estate that enables people to age as best as possible so there's some sense of engagement they mm-hmm. can keep mobile and they can keep moving um, but then also provides a range of services for very very different needs of yeah. different people um, and you know like so much of this ageing society story and I use the ageing society story um, you know there's, there's, there's two big changes one is I think how our ageing is changing and that 
means we have to discover whole new services that we never thought of before. Uh, you know, the rise of STDs amongst older people, for instance, mm-hmm. is like, well, we, you know, we've got to think about how we deal with that. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, there's just so many more older mm-hmm. people. And those two together mean that we've got to come up with solutions to social problems that we've never really had to deal with at scale before. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a multiplicity of experiments. Cause I think that's the other thing that, mm. you know, we don't yet know how to construct a hundred year life or to construct a society where so many people are living into their 90s. Mm. And I, you know, as an academic, I'm always saying, you know, you've got, yeah, you've got to have data-based policies, but I think we've got to have the experiments to create the data yeah. and trust people's instinct because we don't know what works and we kind of need these pioneers to find out for us. Yeah, there's a lot of experimentation and that should be okay. You know? Absolutely. It should be, it should yeah. be promoted. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the 20th century and what we created then, we didn't create it overnight. I think, you know, going back to teenagers, I think... Adolescence is kind of is a concept recognised 1880, and it's not really until sort of James Dean that we kind of get a fix on what teenage years are. It's like sixty odd years, yeah. Yeah. if not more. So yeah, this this process takes a while. It does take a while. It's a process, not an event, indeed. And we've talked, uh, we touched a little bit on public policy, um, and I'm just um, I'm keen to 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 to, to hear about um, some of the best or better government policies you've seen. Um, that are enabling the hundred year life, and maybe there aren't, but are there any sort of shining lights? Well, there are, and it is that you know the, the answer to which question does anything best is invariably Singapore when it comes to economics and policy, I and mean, they're just incredibly forward looking. They have, of course, also got an awful lot of very old people. Right. So Singapore, on a raft of ways, is doing lots of smart things. You talked about intergenerational housing, so they're already there, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you're no doubt be aware of the sort of old people's homes next to the child nurseries etc they're also fantastic on lifelong learning uh, so they give everyone the credit which they can spend every year for educational purposes but when I say educational purposes it's not really Mm. um, doing a degree it can be anything you know as long as people are being kept active and they're just focusing uh, more and more on health education Mm -hmm. and community Mm. and you know they can see what's happening. There's no mystery what's happening to the demographic structure. There's no great surprises to come. The only surprise will be how people age. Yeah. And so can we get them to age better? And that's what Singapore's working on. Right. And and, and when you say it's working, what are some of the results that they're seeing? Uh, it's working on rather than working. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, of course, what you are seeing is... Um, uh, good health stats and good life expectancy stats in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Whether that's brought about by the current policies is hard to say. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, this is just what they're doing literally the last five years or so and right. building up to plan of the future. Right. Uh, and of course, Singapore has some advantages. It's a relatively small country. It's almost a city-state um, and a government with a track record of phenomenal achievements. Yeah. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of cities in other places. So in the UK, Manchester is... Uh, um, uh, he's doing some very interesting things and Newcastle also looking to do something similar mm. so you're seeing uh, pockets um, uh, but um, yeah governments in general say that most of what they're doing at the moment is saying we're going to raise the state pension age mm-hmm. yeah which you know is kind of the logic of the 100 year life but if that's all you do you're going to swap um, pensions for unemployment you're just going to have a bunch of people who are unemployed and don't have the skills and that, that's as much as a challenge um, so for mm-hmm. me, the really key thing that very few governments are yet doing well at is lifelong learning. 
right. providing okay. touchstones throughout life. So mm-hmm. uh, David Blake, who runs an ed tech company called Degrees, has got a great thing. He says, if I asked you how healthy you were, and you said, well, I ran a marathon 20 years ago, you would say that's a strange answer. That doesn't tell me how healthy you are. Mm. But if you say to someone, you know, sort of, uh, what's your education? And you say, well, I did economics 30 years ago. It's sort of like, well, we take that as an answer. Yeah. And, of course, what we have to different degrees in different countries is a health system with touch points that people can access right the way through life. Mm-hmm. And we don't think of health as an event. We think it as a continual thing. Mm-hmm. We kind of need to do the same with education. But we haven't got an option to do that at scale in an accessible way mm. anywhere, mm. partly because we've never had to do it before. Yeah. But this will be a key part because, you know, getting people... Uh, learning, and, and I mean learning in the most broad sense of just, you know, discovering something new or thinking about things differently, has to be key both for employment, given what's happening with technology, but also, I think, for these longer working careers and longer lives. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's such an important subject, so let's just dive into it a little bit. Um, your lifelong learning is, um, it, it, it is absolutely critical. So done well, what, what could it look like in, in, in well, terms of, yeah? Again, we don't know. I mean, that's where, I mean, the people will say that technology and education are a race. As long as education can keep out of technology, then people's jobs are kind of safe. So mm. when the Industrial Revolution happened, we expanded education massively to 14, 16 and 18 and provided it for everyone. And now, of course, when half of the people in the UK do a degree, if we're going to extend education all the more, it's surely going to have to come throughout life. Mm-hmm. So we have to do perhaps something similar to the Industrial Revolution where we provide mass education at scale. Mm-hmm. But we've never done it for adults, and what we know is that adults learn differently. I think it's andragogy is the name of the, the, the pedagogy of teaching older uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you teach older or adults, um, it has to be more self-driven, the learning, more self-directed. It has to be more experiential and um, more employment or purpose focused. So that's kind of a little bit what we do in a business school, to be honest, which, of course, where we do teach adults. But that's a whole new way of teaching. But I think what you'll then start to realise is that for adult education, it won't necessarily be about degrees. Uh, It could be short courses. And some will be just around updating skills or providing new skills because jobs have been lost because of a new technology. And some of it, I think, will be more personal and transitional, what we referred to earlier, where you have a chance to take stock of your life, your health, your values, your finances, and prepare for the next stage. And that's a much more communal uh, type of process compared to you know watching a YouTube video about how to you know, code in Python or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there will be a plethora of different ways of uh, of learning, um, and I think a lot of this will happen outside of traditional institutions who mm-hmm. tend to be focused on younger education and on degrees. The expansion will be adults and non degrees. Mm-hmm. So possibly we'll see a resurgence of uh, colleges of further education, uh, which will be interesting, yep. community colleges. Great. Um, and then clearly tech will have some role to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mindful there's, a, there's, there's a, a great quote that if you think tech is the solution to education, you don't understand tech or education. I think that's a, a, a great yeah, insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But tech clearly has a role to play in this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I think we, we touched on, we touched on this before, but uh, I think um, corporates and employers have got to um, 
you know, seize the opportunity as well. You know, there's 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 yeah. some great work out now around. You know, we we are different, and when, when we're older, there's certain skills and yeah. life skills that you've built up that yes. you don't have when you're younger. Yes, and and helping uh, people to harness that. Um, yes, and yeah. clearly, I mean, the, the fluid and crystallized intelligence literature says that uh, your skills shift over time, and then how we exploit that and make the most of this greater number of older people is key. I think the other thing that literature shows you is there's never a point in your life where all forms of your intelligence peak. There's always mm. sort of something that's beginning to decline and something that's beginning to rise. Mm. So being attuned to what those shifts are mm. is important. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, firms will need to create uh, good employers will need to create a learning environment mm-hmm. where people remain curious. The challenge with a hundred year life and so many of the social trends we're seeing, though, is that greater and greater responsibility is being put on the individual. Mm. And if you do have a 60-year career, which the 100-year life may imply, um, you're going to have many different jobs and many different employers. So it's going to be your self-motivation to keep learning mm-hmm. and your responsibility. And that, that's, that's a daunting prospect, I think. It is, and you, you touch on an important point there. So if somebody is starting to, f- to feel a little bit left behind um, and starting to think, you know, where, where do I fit in with all of this, who's sort of in, in, in midlife, what are some of the early steps or key steps they could take towards getting on the right path? And I know that's a big question. But yes, yeah, and I, yeah. and I, uh, yeah. I, I uh, always, um, I mean, I struggle to run my own life, let alone give advice to anyone else. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, there, there's a couple of things here. The first is one of the things about longer life is change is inevitable. And mm. if you're thinking that you're being left behind, then you're beginning the process of change to begin with. Right. And it's a good queasy point. sensation, but kind of it's a good place to begin with. So you're beginning to take an audit of, well, why am I getting left behind? Why am I getting left behind? Why did I get that sense of sensation? And then you're, it's embarking on a transition. And, and transitions are tricky. I mean, I think... One of the concepts I loved learning about with the 100-year life is this anthropological concept of liminality. Mm. Uh, And liminalities I find fascinating, and I've experienced a fair bit of it myself in uh, my uh, later life. Um, So liminality is the moment in a transition when you're no longer what you were, but Mm. you're not yet what you've become. It's betwixt and between, it's called. Mm. So teenage years are the most obvious example here because you're no longer the child you were. You've lost that identity, but you're not yet the adult you're going to become. Right. And, of course, that's terribly exciting because you could be anyone, but it's terrifying because who am I? So you're sort of a bit lost. Some people love that space, but in general, society finds ways to help people go through that betwixt and between moment. And it's really a time where your identity is becoming unmoored and getting comfortable with that and knowing how to deal with it is, I think, part of a longer life. But if you haven't had much experience of it, it's a massively big shock. Mm. So what you have to do is put yourself into different situations. And I think that's kind of hard. Um, on the website for the book, we have a diagnostic test based on the four assets. And one of the things, you know, thousands of people have done it now. And it's interesting, the data, because one of the things that comes out is men my age, sort of early 50s. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky I've got lots of good friends, but they're kind of all the same. 
And How do you, you mean? Well, they're all roughly the same age. They like 1980s music. They like football. They worked in economic right. finance. So yeah. we have a great time. We get on really well. It's lovely. Um, but if I want to change, that's probably not a great group to spend time with. I see. So you've got to then do something different. And then that means that I'm not Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics, with all my friends who know who I am and what I've done and what I've achieved. I'm just that bloke in the corner. And that's hard. But, mm-hmm. of course, through that, you're going to meet new ideas and new people and go through that process of change. But that does mean you need to get people to support you through that process. And they may be different people from your normal group because often people like you as they are. Yeah. So I think that sense of an audit, sense of awareness of change uh, and trying to connect and do things different and recognize that this is foreign mm. Um and, of course, not everything that you experiment with works out well. Some things don't. Some things do. Um, but, it, you know, the, the, the beginning of change comes from recognising that something is wrong mm-hmm. uh, and then trying to find a community that can help you your way through it is the, the key. I think you're absolutely right, and, and you're really onto something there because your remaining curious is, 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 is seems to be critical yeah. you know, to, towards it, the pathway to purpose. Before that... I think there's a whole conversation around permission that we need to have with ourselves um, yes. and and to say that, you know, you, I'm the only person that's going to change things around yeah. me. It's okay to, you know, you don't get on a bike and start to ride. You, you fall off a couple of times yes. and that that's okay yeah. um, because not doing anything isn't, isn't an option yes. anymore. And, yes. and, but first starting off with that permission. And, yeah. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. and, you know, those teenage years, I think it's interesting how, you know, in this new stage, if we are going through transitions, the liminality is similar to the teenage years, which mm. is possibly the last time people went through a major sense of transition. And that's all about experimenting and making mistakes and finding out what you like or what you don't like and yeah. and faking it till you make it and all those yeah. sorts of things. which is exciting and it should be viewed as that and I think and, and encouraged. I, I, yes. I, 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 yes. I mean, for some people it's great, others it's painful. And, of course, the question is, you need to know which of those characters you are. And if you're ones who find it painful, then think how you're going to do it in a way that's going to mitigate the pain. Yeah. Um, and that may be more cautious or it may be with more uh, company or finding someone to do it with. But yeah. but obviously, perhaps the more times you do it, then uh, hopefully the better, the easier it is. Yeah, absolutely right. I think it's a really important point. So um, how, how has um, being sort of suddenly seen as an expert in ageing and longevity changed you? It, it, it's kind of a, a period of liminality myself too because you think, well, I, yeah, I do interest rates and GDP, so it's been fun. Mm. Um, what I love about this topic is it's got me out and about meeting a whole wide range of people with just really different intellectual interests, which I love. I've always been very broad-minded intellectually. So I can do the econ and the finance stuff in this space, but then I meet the medics, then you meet the creative people. Mm. And then, of course, you meet people who aren't driven by ideas but driven by people and Mm -hmm. doing the most wonderful things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. The the, the weird thing about that, I then get asked a lot of questions like you did, which is like, you know, if I'm feeling a bit left behind, what should I do? And you think, well, I'm an economist. I've spent most of my life talking about the Chinese renminbi. Um, <laughs> so this is strange when people come. I mean, people would come up to me early on with a book and say, I heard you give a talk, I read the book, and it changed my life. And I was kind of unnerved at first about this because it's, it's a book. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, over time, I think that's fantastic because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, the book doesn't give any answers. It just says you've got to be thinking about these topics. And if people think about it and then say, this is what I'm going to do, then that's wonderful. 
I think that's a great achievement for of the book, and that's why it's 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 been so popular. It's just coming at the right time, and it's 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 opening up a door that everybody kind of knows is there, mm-hmm. and it's and it's offering a um, it's articulating a, a, a way forward, and and I think it's it, that's why it's a great piece of work, and it's come at the right Thank time. You. Yeah. So we, before we wrap up, quick question that I like to ask all all of all of my guests: or, or, Who are some of your your own heroes? Oh, I, I don't do heroes. Well, it's loads of people I admire and respect. Okay, let's uh, let's do it that way. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a football fan, so I go to the Spurs on Saturday and I see Harry Kane, and I think he's wonderful what he does. He does mm-hmm. extraordinary things. Um, I, I confess, I, if I have to pluck a hero, I one of the reasons I like James Joyce is for lots of reasons is his Ulysses book. He takes an ordinary man, Leopold Bloom. Mm-hmm who struggles to get through daily life but does so in a way that is kind and humane. And I, for me, that's I love Joyce's idea that that's actually our modern-day hero. So I'll go for that as my hero. That's great. That's a, um, uh, it's the first time I've heard that. That's wonderful. Okay. Uh, and so last question. You know, it's been, um, it's been said that um, um, your search engines are good at coming up with answers, but a wise sage... Um, asks the right question. So now, you know, you know this is a show around flourishing and, and leaving a legacy. And um, what, what's one question that perhaps we, we should be asking ourselves to get started on, on the right path towards a successful 100-year life? Yeah, so that's a great one. I think it's, it comes back to the question, which is you've got more future if you look at the stats. So what do you want to make of that future? And um, that's about thinking two or three steps ahead, which is kind of liberating. But uh, it's the hardest thing to do. But I think that's the real opportunity. Um, Joseph Coughlin from MIT says, you know, 36 years extra life and all we can talk about is how we can be paid the Social Security bill. What about all the wonderful new things we could do with this extra time? Yeah. And so I think that's really the question that individually and as a society we have to answer. Wow, that many more people are living that much longer on average in good health? How do you make the best use of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, doing it at a social level is hard, but we have to ask ourselves that question individually. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's a huge opportunity. Um, well, listen, thank you very much. Before I wrap up, um, uh, is there somewhere where our listeners can find you online? Uh, yeah, um, andrewscott.global. Uh, okay. And you can follow me on Twitter at Prof Andrew Scott. Wonderful. Well, Andrew, um, thank you very much. Uh, it's been great chatting. Could chat for easily two, three hours more on the subject. Um, 100 years at least. 100 years at least. Uh, and I would recommend everybody who hasn't read the, the, the book, The 100 Year Life, should do. Um, it's a phenomenal piece of work that's come um, absolutely at the right time. So thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Andrew for that fascinating conversation. Could have gone on for a lot more time. Uh, you can find Andrew at andrewscott.global and on Twitter at Prof. Andrew Scott. Uh, and the book's at all major outlets. And there's also uh, a new book coming out from Andrew and Linda, which you should watch out for, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of press on that. You can find us at wildpeople.com or on Instagram at wildpeople. Thanks for listening, and stay wild. <laughs>